Uber needs to visualize data on a range of different surfaces. A smartphone user sees cars moving around on a map as they wait for their ride to arrive. Data scientists and operations researchers within Uber study the renderings of traffic moving throughout a city. Data visualization is core to Uber, and the company has developed a stack of technologies around visualization in order to build appealing, highly functional applications. DECGL is a library for high-performance visualizations of large datasets. LumaGL is a set of components that targets high-performance rendering. These and other tools make up VizGL, the data visualization technology that powers Uber. Uber's visualization team included Ib Green, who left Uber to co-found Unfolded.ai, a company that builds geospatial analytics products. Ib joins the show to discuss his work on visualization products and libraries at Uber, as well as the process of taking that work and founding Unfolded.ai. Full disclosure, I am an investor in Unfolded AI. If you want to reach 30,000 unique engineers every day, consider sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Whether you are hiring engineers or selling a product to engineers, Software Engineering Daily is a great place to reach talented engineers. You can send me an email, jeff at Software Engineering Daily, if you are curious about sponsoring the podcast. And we're also looking for writers and a videographer. If you're great with video or you're a great writer and you want to write about software, then send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Ib Green, welcome to the show. Thank you. You were at Uber for four years on the visualization team. Describe what you worked on at Uber on the visualization team. Yes, at Uber, we had, you know, a very interesting uh, challenge. We had uh, very big data, obviously. You know, I tend to think of Uber as a planetary scale transportation system that generates, you know, enormous amount of data every second. And an aspect of that data is that all that data has, you know, a geospatial information associated with it. Everything, all the trips takes place somewhere and they start somewhere and they end somewhere. And so... And of course, when you operate at that scale, as Uber does, it's extremely important to develop efficiencies. You want a very efficient operation. And so to be able to derive insights from the data and understand how various actions that you take actually affect the efficiency, you know, would then you know, be extremely valuable. And the other thing that we also realized in the visualization team was that with WebGL technologies today, you can access the GPU from the browser and uh, visualize very large data very seamlessly and easily. So what we set out to do in the visualization team was to build a set of technologies, a set of frameworks to visualize big data directly in the browser, especially geospatial big data. And could you just double down on why visualization is so important at Uber? So I, you have visualizations not just in the Uber app itself, like the visualization of a car moving towards you, but you have lots of back-end visualizations. Tell me more about the span of different visualizations across Uber. Yes, so visualization has been a very powerful concept throughout Uber. It obviously has a very wide range. There's a lot of uh, traditional visualization, which is traditional charting, and you have the, you know, 
the various types of graphs showing the, you know, the business performance or other types of metrics, you know, especially the geospatial visualizations where we're showing data on top of uh, maps. And there's many, many instances. There's probably four dozen major applications built inside Uber on top of these frameworks. And there's everything from, you know, seeing where cars are, you know, in specific region to being able to narrow in for a customer support person to narrow in on a specific trip and see exactly when different things happen, when the, you know, where the car was, when the call, when it was dispatched, you know, when the pickup happened, where the drop-off happened and other things. There's machine learning pipelines where various types of improvements are being made and you want to go in and see where, you know, and understand what's happening as the trip is being optimized. Obviously, Uber has developed autonomous vehicles. So there's a very rich amount of visualization happening there. There's maps, very good understanding of maps also requires visualizing data on top of the maps. Uber Elevate has helicopters and drones and needs to look at their channels and other types of compliance. So, and it goes on, there are many more examples. And as far as displaying large quantities of data and displaying data in a geospatial arrangement, I assume there are some prototypical visualization problems. Like you've got vast quantities of data, you've got data that you need to render quickly, you've got streaming data, you've got lots of different application surfaces. Can you tell me the prototypical visualization problems that you encountered at Uber? Yes, there are obviously many, and it depends obviously on the situation that you're in. We tried to create a fairly general tool. So we tried to build systems that would work on general tables and be able to display very large tables without a lot of additional processing. But obviously, there's everything from, you know, you need a lot of work on the data side, obviously, to create data pipelines, and you need to, you know, process the data, you need to ensure it has integrity as it reaches the point where you want to visualize it, and you need to have the good, you know, system to, you know, stream the data into the browser and, you know, get it ready for visualization. If you look more on the front-end side, where we did a lot of the work utilizing the GPU, you know, if you look at traditional 3D frameworks, they're more designed for games and kind of scene graph type uh, designs. And they tend to allow very sophisticated manipulation of the different elements in the scene, but they also require a kind of a traversal with individual draw calls. And that really only scales well to maybe a few thousand uh, elements on the scene. And so the technology that we use for efficient visualization is something called instance rendering. And it was really developed for you know, games where you wanted perhaps to have a very large uh, set of, you know, soldiers or, you know, lots of, you know, similar types of vegetation or straws of grass or something. And you render basically one primitive again and again and again, but just with uh, slightly different parameters, a different position, a little bit of a different tilt or angle. And so we basically upload entire tables, large million row tables directly into the GPU, and then we treat them as uh, we use this instance rendering technique to get uh, very, very high levels of performance. So giving the, the browser access to the GPU, that's a newer development that when the browsers had access to the GPU? So I think roughly around uh, 2011, maybe, the first versions of WebGL started to become available. And there were some early frameworks that, you know, were started to utilize that, utilize that really already from the beginning. So for instance, 3JS, which actually everyone now knows maybe as the leading JavaScript WebGL framework, you know, had existed even before WebGL and had different types of render, more of a canvas render 
and then added a web gel renders. That's kind of interesting. And there's also other types of geospatial frameworks like uh, CCMJS, for instance, that have been around for a long time. So. so can you tell me more about the interface between the GPU and the browser? So the really kind of exciting thing, I think, with the ability to access the GPU is that normally when you're in a browser, you're in a kind of a virtual environment. And so you typically would expect to have a certain amount of performance penalty compared to uh, working with a native application. And so everything is either interpreted or just in time compiled, but there is still penalty and, you know, it's arguable. But when you work with the GPU, you basically upload data buffers and then you provide various types of, you know, GPU programs and description of how to process those. And once you start the GPU, there are no inefficiencies anymore. You basically, you can't get closer to the metal than that. And so it's very powerful to be able to to work directly with the GPU. The small limitation that you have is that you have to work with uh, the WebGL API, which does not give uh, access to all the features of the latest GPUs. And so that's something of a limitation, but that's also being addressed with the uh, WebGPU and other technologies that are now uh, emerging. And could you give me an overview of the state of geospatial visualization tools? Because you've been working in, on this space since 2014, and I know a lot has changed since 2014. And also, you know, when you actually were developing tools at Uber, there was some prior art. So can you give me a brief timeline of geospatial visualization tools from when you've been in the business? Yes. Well, you know, obviously there are um, companies that have been around for a very long time. I mean, Estri uh, has been doing uh, geospatial tooling for maybe almost 50 years. And so, you know, the timeline is, is quite long. I think when it comes to doing these things in the browser and taking advantage of WebGL. I think a big, you know, obviously, CCMJS, which has been more targeting, you know, kind of full 3D globe visualizations uh, with uh, maybe aerospace, that type of originating in those type of use cases. And then, of course, Mapbox, which, you know, who did an incredible job on rendering, you know, map tiles or base maps at, uh, with very high performance with Mapbox uh, GL. So to me, those are maybe the most important kind of comparisons. But there are obviously other companies that provide uh, more, you know, full services with backends and other things to process spatial data. Yeah, so you mentioned Esri. They make the ArcGIS system. We actually just did a show with that. Can you tell me about what role ArcGIS plays in the geospatial ecosystem? Well, I mean, I think it plays a huge role, right? So Esri is an incredibly established company with an enormous user base, uh, hundreds of thousands of customers, and they have very big trade shows with, and they also, there, you know, maybe 70,000, 80,000 attendees actually coming and visiting their shows. And I think their developer conferences also tend to be, you know, very, very well visited. So they've built a huge ecosystem around this. And obviously they've been around for a very long time and they cover a very wide range of of use cases. And so it's really hard for me to pin, <laughs> pinpoint something specific around S3 because I think they have some, some offering and some product in, in almost every you know, geospatial facet. So I guess we can get to Uber. So you started Uber in 2015. And around that time, React was becoming quite popular. I think no discussion about the front end would be complete without a mention of React. How important was React in developing high-quality visualization tools around that time? Yes, React was you know, very influential at Uber. The 
front-end community at Uber really came together around using React. And we were able to create components and frameworks that could be shared you know, across all applications because of this. And so because of that, it was very influential for the design of the visualization frameworks and technologies, and especially the aspect of React that it is based on a functional programming paradigm, which are very powerful for user interfaces, but it's not well supported by many traditional, more imperative 3D frameworks. And so being able to do GPU programming in a way that is compatible with functional programming paradigms then became one of the design criteria for our frameworks. So what is the interaction between React and WebGL? Can you talk more about WebGL? Yes, absolutely. The way we think about WebGL, obviously, is that we have these very big, you know, once you hand over to WebGL or to the GPU, rather, you need to set up, you know, big tables of data that are formatted in on the GPU, uploaded to the GPU, the buffers of data that are formatted in just exactly the right way that the, the various layer shaders expect. And so the work of, you know, preparing these tables and uploading them is then you know, quite costly. Tables could have millions of rows, and this can be many megabytes of data. And you don't want to update these tables, you know, any more frequently than you absolutely need to. So this is a big challenge in the functional programming style where you have to make sure that as you declaratively update the layers, you know, the visualization, the framework needs to very intelligently make decisions about when the data needs to be you know, uploaded to the GPU or modified or recalculated and updated on the GPU. Yeah, tell me more about how WebGL plays a role in visualization tools. Well, the basic concept is to be able to bring in very big data without having to do a lot of processing on it. And so, and to some extent, you know, the WebGL, if you think about, for those who know how a shader works, it, the shader basically have different attributes and it could have big positions, colors, and other things, the data that you feed into the shader. And for us, we think about tables, the traditional tables, which you kind of normally think about in row-based form. We think about those in columnar form. So you have a table consisting of columns and mapping those columns onto the attributes. It's basically, we think of the GPU as having, you know, a columnar table in GPU memory. And we think of the data that's coming in as being a columnar table in, in CPU memory or on disk. And so the framework does the mapping between these two. And then we basically write shader code to render this very efficiently. So, you know, obviously, if you work with a more on the CPU side, you can work with technologies such as SVG, for instance. And SVG has a lot of styling that you can apply. But once you get to 1,000 elements or 10,000 elements of SVG, your performance becomes quite challenged. And so we need to then, you know, the goal is then to provide a subset of that styling but render things on the GPU. And so there's two types to do styling on a GPU. You can do it through uniforms, which means you can change them very quickly, but the properties, the changes that you make will then apply to all the different elements in your table. If we have a scatter plot layer, we're rendering one point per layer and you can set the uniform and you can change the radius uh, scale of all the points, for instance, or the opacity of all the points very, very efficiently. And you can animate those changes very efficiently. But if you want to make the change to each individual element, then you kind of, it's a terminology called, uh, often referred to as data-driven styling, so that, you know, the contents of each row essentially in the table would affect the, you know, styling of the element corresponding to that row to that point. And so then you have to recalculate the attributes in the GPU table. So those are some uh, things to think about there. So tell me more about the engineering problems that you were trying to solve when you started building visualization tools at Uber? What were the specific problems that you needed to solve? 
So when I started out, I was uh, part of building up a new team called uh, Marketplace Hell. And so we really dealt, I think, it was kind of a magical challenge where we were looking at the core of the Uber business, which was really supply and demand and, you know, obviously surge, which you can kind of view where the demand outstripped the supply and prices were adjusted to kind of balance the system and which, you know, the view we took at that <laughs> at the time was that it kind of was more of an inflammation. It was a health issue, right? And so we, we thought about creating these tools that would be able to help you visualize this kind of issue in the system and then, uh, you know, obviously provide ways to correct it and get back to balance between supply and demand. And so uh, this is obviously involves, uh, you know, big data, it happens both in space and in time. So, you'll be able to have a, certain, you have a certain situation with supply and demand at a given time, and you will be able to visualize that, and you can visualize it on a map. You can make it as a heat map, and you can see how the supply and demand, you know, the supply is low in some regions and high in some, in some areas, and, and also the demand, right, which obviously is very driven by uh, the time of day, whereas, you know, people are commuting, and the demand will be, you get into the city, will be high in the morning, and conversely in the evening. And so then also being able to see this over time and so actually see how this evolves over time and then be able to do playbacks and then also be able to correlate things over time and actually see how various types of actions that are being taken to improve this have long-term effects and be able to factor out other types of data that might be correlated that kind of masking the signal. Right. So you have this suite of tools that you ended up building called VizGL. Can you tell me about VizGL and the suite of tools that you built? Yes, we started creating, so we took the framework-driven approach. As we started out in one of these applications, we built WebGL-based visualization layer system for rendering you know, very large-scale data. And then as we moved on, being part of a visualization team, we were then kind of our charter was to help additional teams. So we were able to take that same technology we, we had built that we had spent some extra time generalizing. And then we had a few more, you know, for every team, every new application that we, we approached, we got a few more requirements, four or five new features that were critical. And so we took those and we spent some extra work implementing those in a way that they were, you know, also reusable and that we could move them into the framework. And so this eventually grew out to an entire suite of frameworks. And so the kind of le leading framework in this suite is uh, DECGL obviously, which is the data visualization framework, but it sits on top of other frameworks. We have a framework to deal with WebGL2 that we call LumaGL, which you can think of as the WebGL engine. We have a very big framework for loading data. So we have geospatial and 3D loaders for a wide variety of formats called LoadersGL and many others. So DECGL is this library for high-performance visualizations of large data sets why is it hard to render a large data set? Well, if you don't need to render it quickly, if you don't need to do any changes, you know, it, it's okay if the approach is a little bit slower and you can use any traditional technique. If you want to be able to, you know, seamlessly zoom and pan and maybe tilt and look at your data set from other angles, if you want to animate it, then obviously, and you want to have any type of fluid, you know, experience with it then definitely you're going to need uh, to use non-CPU-based techniques. And so obviously things, when you work on the GPU, things are more, um, they're more constrained. You get massive parallel uh, computational power, but you need to get uh, data in a very organized format. And so 
I think that's kind of the challenge, uh, main challenge in this case. Do you load the static static data sets in bulk, or do you render streaming data sets? What's the typical input situation for DeckGL? So the core use case is that you load a single table and you load it in, in bulk, you load it atomically, and you then basically display it. So you can have, you know, and that works pretty well, certainly up to a million, you know, rows in the table, a little bit depending on what kind of visualization you're doing and what kind of you know, machine you have, you might be able to push it to 5, 10 million rows. If you go beyond that, and, and usually loading might be acceptably fast for that use case. Now, if you go beyond that, you know, far beyond that, you're going to need different approaches. And we've actually done a lot of work on taking, you know, going further. And so one very interesting trend that is happening now in the technology is the development of tile layer approaches, especially 3D tile layers. So there's, you know, a couple of standards, a couple of different uh, systems for this. And this is something we've done a lot of work on to build out where you can basically represent a very, very big geometry or very big set of data geospatially using a hierarchy of tiles or tables, if you will. And so on the very high level, you would load the kind of an overview of the data. And then as you zoom in, there are additional tiles with more and more data. And, you know, it works maybe most kind of immediately. The use cases are, you know, really big point clouds or maybe really big photogrammetry of big cities and so on. But the same technique can be applied to raw data. And using this, there's really no limit. You can go, uh, certainly there's examples of city-sized point clouds where we have maybe a billion points. There's uh, country-sized point clouds where you can go up to, you know, maybe 10 or 100 times that. And there's every even continent-scale point clouds where you can be in the trillions of points. So this is a very powerful technology. So you think about a, a point cloud, like I've got a table in my database and this is going to be a point cloud that's going to be rendered on some geospatial map, there's so many engineering questions there, like how are you getting the geospatial map in the first place, and then how are you superimposing the data on top of that map? Could you just take me through the loading of a visualization? Yes, certainly. Well, you know, when it comes to point clouds in particular, you could potentially just have the points in a table, right? You could have a very simple table. It could be a C, you know, comma separated values, a CSV or a JSON file. And it could have just the longitude and latitude and height of each point. Maybe you have some color on the point or, or something like that. So it could be very simple like that. Or it could be, in the case of point clouds, there's efficient mechanisms to do a significant compression, lossy but uh, significant compression. And you also tend to want to store them in binary format and so on. So you could use something like Draco compression. And then you need a more sophisticated loading system to uncompress that on the client as it as it comes in. But essentially, it's just about loading in this, you know, getting like a really long array of, you know, with the coordinates of the points and maybe the attributes of the points. And then you need to basically upload that one to the GPU and turn it into two attributes by, you know, like a columnar table on the GPU. And then you have a shader, which renders a point with basically, you know, has a little geometry, a little primitive geometry, a little circle or square or something for each point, and then a rasterizer, you know, fragment shader that basically turns that into a circle or whatever shape you want to have to represent each point. And then obviously, you know, when I apply lighting or other types of, you know, things to make the visualization stand up. So are there engineering issues that emerge from having too high of a volume of data? 
like if you have a really big big data set and you want to load that onto a map are there any engineering concerns there or do you just not hit any bottlenecks you never have too many data points in practice it has been remarkably rare that people run out of juice with the frameworks that we have I mean, we do have a limit, practical limit, as mentioned, somewhere between one and 10 million rows in a table. And so people just really tend to load, you know, 100 million rows or, you know, really, really big tables. We've certainly done experiments. We're big uh, believers in a technology called Apache Arrow. We do a lot of work on integrating and supporting Arrow. It's a binary columnar format, which really allows you to generate a table in, in one system, in a server, for instance, and then with completely without serialization, you send it over and more or less just memory map it out on the network. And then as we get it in on the client, you know, if it's formatted correctly, we can just basically upload it directly to the GPU without even touching it in, in JavaScript. And there's a way to, to do kind of batched send error uh, tables in a batched format. So you load them batch by batch. And by doing that, we've been able to load very big tables. So we, you know, we've exceeded 50 million rows. You know, there are challenges. Obviously, you can get into a number of different issues. You can get, if you render that many elements and each of them, if you have like too big a radius on the points, you can generate a tremendous amount of points, right? You get an overdraw where each, you know, pixel is rendered again and again and again. And once you're starting render, trying to render billions of pixels every frame, you get huge issues. So to really make a system that kind of supports, you know, a hundred million use case and beyond as a single layer, as opposed to streaming in tiles, there would need to be work, some additional work to be done. But we have many ideas, but so far we have never really had to, uh, to go that far. So you mentioned Arrow. Last time I did a show on Arrow, the way it was presented to me was that it was a data interchange format between Java and Python so has it advanced beyond that, where now it's more of a general interchange format? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you go to the Apache Arrow GitHub repository, you're going to find uh, probably 15 different folders in the root with different languages. You're going to see C++, Rust, you know, there's JavaScript, and there's Java, and probably R, and Python, and, and a very long list of bindings. So there are some very interesting, you know, technologies. There's also a kind of a in-memory server that allows, you know, multiple languages to share memory that is organized. So you could basically have like mm -hmm. a Java program, a Python program, C++ program, all having a shared memory where they have a, an arrow table and they can all, you know, access it in synchronicity. That's unfortunately not possible in JavaScript on a browser because we can't share memory with, with the rest of the system because of the security concerns. But, you know, we'll obviously lead, it could potentially be done in a Node Node.js type environment and, and uh, would obviously lead to, you know, fantastic performance characteristics. Are there any WebAssembly things that could lead to being able to share memory across processes like that in the browser? I don't see that. I think that that would be a basic, uh, you know, kind of a fundamental feature of the browser, whether it supported shared memory. And I, I guess because of the massive security implications of that, it would have to be like a special, you know, build of the browser or something. I, mm. I'm not too hopeful of, that that would happen in the browser. Got it. So DeckGL this visualization library for large data sets. What problems did DECGL solve for you? Well, I mean, uh, on one hand, I think it provided a tremendous amount of efficiency because you know, this solving, creating a very kind of large suite of, you know, advanced visualization tools and being able to, having to solve the same problems over and over again, it turned out, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's been, you know, a very good decision to take this platform approach. 
I mean, there are several ways to look at the question because one, you know, it's obviously this was used heavily internally, but it was also used, you know, externally. And so, I mean, there's maybe a separate discussion to be had about that, but the fact that we were able to get also external validation, external, you know, collaborations out of it was also adding value. And I think it really allowed us to, the fact that we are, were building this in a reusable way meant that we were able to lift the level of functionality quite a bit. We were able to take this framework much, much further than we would have done if we had created you know, a number of separate visualization solutions for different applications. So the suite of tools of VizGL, beyond DeckGL, encompassed LumaGL. It also encompassed some other tools for data visualization. Tell me about how these different frameworks fit together and what they did in concert. Yes, you know, I think it's uh, partly up to kind of maybe the architectural or aesthetic uh, preferences of the people who, you know, including myself and and other people who built this. And the kind of, you know, design that we like is to have, you take one complex of functionality and you try to create, uh, you know, independent modules so that we avoid having too much coupling between different systems. And then I, we kind of very focused then on each of these pieces being usable on its own. So the way we kind of chose to architect things was as as a number of different frameworks, each of which can be used on its own, but potentially if you use them together, they all work. You know, you have the guarantee that they work seamlessly out of the box. And so this was partly just because it's good design, but partly also because we really wanted to encourage collaborations. And we didn't necessarily want to make it an all or nothing proposition for users, whether they were internal, you know, in the company or, or maybe more commonly external users. So if you have something where you can allow people to choose the pieces that they need and replace the pieces that they, whatever reason, don't like, that makes uh, many discussions uh, much uh, simpler. Got it. So as these frameworks evolved within the company, they became really sophisticated. It got to be a pretty considerable set of software. Did other companies adopt the open source frameworks once you open sourced them? So we certainly saw, you know, very big uh, adoption of the tools, right, in terms of the frameworks, in in terms of, you know, simply, uh, you know, GitHub recognition and also, you know, in NPM downloads and those uh, types of, you know, uh, statistics. And we had good interaction with a number of users, so lots of issues, lots of good discussions on GitHub and, and our Slack channel. So it was clear that there was a lot of, we were serving some kind of need, that there was a lot of interest in, in these things. And, you know, gradually with time, we've also done a few bigger collaborations where uh, kind of major geospatial companies have chosen to collaborate with us for, on, you know, various features and for various reasons. Have you collaborated with Esri at all with the ArcGIS tool? We have two major collaborations with Esri. We've had just the recent version of DeckGL. We launched the DeckGL ArcGIS integration, which allows you to use ArcGIS as a base map for DeckGL visualizations. And so DeckGL does not contain a base map in itself. It provides map-synchronized visualizations. And so traditionally, we've had Mapbox and Google Maps, but we we now also have an ArcGIS integration. And the other big collaborations we've had with S3 is in 3D tile technology called I3S, indexed scene layers. And this is one of the technologies that allow you to do, you know, country-sized or continent-scaled point clouds and you stream in tiles as you move the view frustum and as you zoom in the tiles that are needed to show, you know, either points or, for instance, photogrammetry of cities and so on. 
And so we've had a big collaboration with S3 there, and we now have support in Loaders GL and DeckGL for indexing layers. So you're the co-founder of Unfolded AI, which is a spatial analytics and visualization company. This company was founded with the technologies that came out of Uber's visualization tools. What's the goal of Unfolded? Well, so I think as a personal goal, you know, certainly there's a huge passion for these technologies. And so, you know, Uber has been an incredible home for them and, you know, allowed us to take these uh, technologies uh, very far. But at the same time, you know, we think the, even though we worked almost five years on these things, we think that there is so much more that can be done on them. And I think, you know, just a, a way to see if we can take these technologies, you know, to the next level. And more from, you know, the business point of view, we do think that there is a huge need for geospatial analytics. There's more and more data out there that has geospatial information associated with it. We think that many of the techniques we have are really helpful. There's a lot of really good geospatial data out there, but it can be very hard to find and use. Unifying data, dealing with issues of, uh, you know, data and integrity you know, doing joins, spatial joins, temporal joins on geospatial data. There are many pitfalls, it takes a lot of work. And so we believe that we have the ability to provide a number of solutions around that that can, you know, make people's life easier and, and more productive. So when I think about geospatial analytics, I think about the opportunity for basically business intelligence tools, very useful business intelligence tools that could superimpose information on top of a map and give me insights, maybe even help me make decisions, like if I'm visualizing something like a shipyard. Tell me about the applications of geospatial analytics software. Well, yes. I mean, in the general case, there are a tremendous amount of use cases and applications. And so... You know, I mean, you could imagine, for instance, if a shipyard, you may want to have a digital twin of the shipyard and, you know, you want to be able to, to kind of on, on a computer go in and, and see, you know, understand how, you know, everything is located and placed and so on. But what we're doing from, you know, the unfolded side is more we're trying to look at, uh, we're really looking at big data with geospatial components to it. And obviously, you want to be able to visualize that. You want to be able to, you know, have a rich toolkit of visualizations to match the data and what you're trying to, you know, the insights that you're trying to get to, to to allow you to be precise there. But I think also you need to be able to, often there's a signal in the data, right, that you're looking for. But often there's correlated information. I think the typical use case there is, you know, it could be something like weather, for instance. Weather can dramatically affect, you know, the speed and which things are done in the real world and so, or the behavior of, you know, people, customers or whatever. And so to be able to find a way to get access to that type of data and to be able to correlate or maybe more precisely decorrelate that data and get that, you know, remove that noise or that kind of influence from your signal so that you can see the true underlying signal and compare over time and see, you know, how things, you know, progress. There's a tremendous amount of high quality, more proprietary data being, or commercial data being available, you know, made available now. But if you look at some of the open data, there's just obviously census data and census data has uh, demographics and other things. And so simply being able to take a data set you have and being able to correlate it with demographics can be very powerful. 
And so, you know, population densities or, you know, the kind of, you can see whether a certain area is growing or kind of obviously other aspects about the kind of average person that lives in a certain area. We've talked to a few companies that are related to geospatial data. We've talked to SafeGraph and Esri. We've talked to Mapbox. Tell me about the landscape of geospatial companies and how they interact with each other. That's a big question. Well, you know, I think that there is obviously a number of, you know, data providers that are very focused. If you take, take something like SafeGraph, they're very focused on, you know, a certain types of, you know, location data. So they produce really, really, really good data, but then obviously they sell that data. But how would you, how you then use that is a little bit up to the customer. And then uh, there's, you know, very wide companies, obviously S3 that has probably, you know, I would guess maybe hundreds of products and have something for, for everything, right? And then you have more companies like Mapbox. They're very focused on providing base maps. They do that on enormous scale, kind of worldwide scale. And then, you know, there are smaller companies that uh, do uh, kind of consulting, helping companies, you know, make sense of their geospatial data, have some services around that. So the total landscape is quite big. There's also uh, satellite data, it's becoming, I think, more and more interesting. So more and more sat- satellite data is being generated, not only like older you know, static satellite data sets, but there are now satellites that are covering the Earth with a certain frequency, and you can get you know, higher and higher resolutions that are basically updated more and more frequently. And so being able to take advantage of that type of data is also an interesting, I think, opportunity. So when you look at the space of potential products that you could build within Unfolded, what are you considering? Do you, have you decided on what product that you're building yet? Oh, yes, we have. <laughs> we're still in stealth, but we are kind of getting close to having something out there. At this point, we're building a very generic tool to help people make sense of, of geospatial data. And so we'll start there, and then we will see if we basically more specialized use cases as we go. How are you exploring the space of available tools to build? So like, I know you have a services business, but can you just tell me more about how you're looking for opportunities? Because there are already all these companies that exist in the space of geospatial data. Where can you find the actual opportunities that are untapped? So we think that there is a huge untapped opportunity in helping creating, you know, very easily accessible tools. So, you know, obviously, if you're a data scientist and you know how to program Python and you're willing to roll up your sleeves, you can do quite a bit on your own. We think that there's a lot of analysts that are either, you know, data scientists that would like easier tools or analysts that could, you know, derive a lot of value. And, and I think that, you know, that's kind of a wide kind of horizontal, you know, group cohort of potential customers. And I think, you know, that's a good starting point. But I think that, you know, in every single industry, I think there will be specific use cases. And so I think there is room for a lot of players and a lot of specific solutions in this marketplace. And so I would say that we have a pretty strong vision of what we want to build. And I think a startup is, you know, usually good at doing something and, you know, one or very few things really well. And I think it's probably best to kind of start in doing the one thing that we, you know, we believe that we can do well. Agreed. So just to close off, there are lots of ancillary technology trends going on right now. So I think about satellite data, increase in satellite data. I think about improvements in the browser through WebAssembly. 
just 5G, for example. How are these different trends, or are there any particular trends that you anticipate changing the scope of applications that geospatial analytics could be applied to? Yes, I think, I mean, just in general, I mean, I think, I think the revolution that's happening, I think what really DeckJet is capitalizing on is the power of the kind of front end. So the traditional geospatial solutions are very focused on backend processing for various reasons. And, you know, we've focused on doing as much analytics and visualization as possible on the front end. And so if you look today, I mean, if you have a MacBook, you have a really powerful machine. It probably has multiple cores, maybe six cores, maybe they're hyper-threaded. You have, you know, probably one, one, maybe even two GPUs. You may have 32 gigabytes of RAM. And that may be, you know, considerably more than the virtual machine that's serving you in the data center. And so, you know, really tapping into that power, I think, is kind of one of the, so maybe, you know, not kind of the most dramatic industry trend, but I think it is a big shift in, in how we think about. So, you know, through this approach, we feel that we can deliver a very strong and superior user experience. And I do think that the, I mean, again, I think that the market for geospatial data is quite small, right? I think that there is some tremendously valuable geospatial data out there. It's very hard to get to, but there are these companies that are working on this and making that data easier to access. I think that's, that's certainly something that's going to happen. I think that's something that's going to maybe that I would perceive as a, as a shift when that happens. That means, again, satellite data, I think, is, as you, as you point out, has huge opportunities. And I also think, you know, I'm hoping, obviously, that the open source approach that we're taking to all of this also can help be transformational because there is a lot of work today as the visualization technologies grow quite complex. You know, there's new formats to do, you know, a 3D model visualization. You have to implement something called GLTF, which is a complex standard. You have to do implement support for these 3D tile systems and other things. And so it seems to me that at some point this becomes a tax on the entire industry. And so if every company sits and re-implements this on their own, then, I mean, ultimately the customers lose because these, you know, as engineers, we could have been focused on doing innovative features and doing, you know, awesome solutions for specific use cases or, and we're all sitting and doing the same table stakes things over and over again. And so I think the fact that we're now seeing this trend towards, you know, open source libraries, I also hope can really help, you know, improve the overall kind of landscape of tooling. Okay. That's a great way to end it. Ib, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Yep. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.